brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. You know, we only have a few minutes together, and I figured it's more important if anything breaks down or shuts down that you get the word of God in you rather than my story, right? His story is it's better than mine. But I was born and raised in Brooklyn in a low-income area, and I was, I was raised in Williamsburg, um, where back in the day, Williamsburg was all about drugs and gangs and alcohol and a lot of coke. A lot of cocaine was, was going through the streets, and I was brought up in that area. Um, my parents split up when I was six, and my mom kicked my father out. And, um, and so it was a single-parent home when I grew up. We had um, a few brothers and sisters at home. My oldest brother, I had a second oldest brother, and then my, my younger sister came uh, a little later. And, uh, and I found out my father was a Rolling Stone, and that's why you know, he was, he, the, the marriage didn't last. When I was around nine years old, um, my father would pick me up to go to work with him. So he would still be in my life, and I loved him very much, and so he would come back and forth, and he had a work van, and so I'd, I'd, I'd go in his work van, but he'd pick me up at four in the morning, um, load me up with a big Dominican breakfast, and, um, and then we'd get to work. And I didn't get back home till about 10 o'clock at night sometimes in the summers, right? I mean, I'd go to school, but in the summertime, that was my work. And I loved working. I, my father taught me how to work, and so I, I just loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, it was around the same time um, when one day in the, in the work van, my father says, love your mother. You only have one, so make sure you give her everything that she needs and make sure you love her. And he also said, um, you're the man of the house. I said, okay, I'm excited about it. Um, but what, what that meant was, is that I'm the man of the house and my oldest brother who was handicapped, special needs. He couldn't see, he couldn't speak, and he couldn't hear. And so I said, okay, I'm the man of the house. I need to take care of home. That was a lot for me to take care of. So I grew up and I tried my best. And so work became that way that I felt I can, I can take care of home because we had food stamps. Back then we had like coupons and stuff like that. We'd go to the store and um, sometimes you get a big block of cheese and some cans of milk and some cornflakes. And so I had, to, I had to figure out how to be the caretaker of home. And it was kind of tough. Around 10 years old, um, I started looking for that approval from, from other men. So my neighbors next door, they fit that bill. My neighbors were popular, they were handsome, they were in high school, um, and I, I wanted to be like them. You know, they, they were great, great men. 
Um, but I, they, they introduced me to porn at that time, right? Of course, you know, they're teenagers and one of them said, you know, I'm 16 years old and if you're not taking a girl to the hotel, then you're not, you're not really a man. So I said, all right, I guess that's the way to do it. And so I grew up and I was influenced by them. Um, and then I had, we lived in a, in a building and so all my, my mother's neighbors would come up and down and they say, oh, you're just like your father. Look at him, he's so cute. How many girlfriends do you have? I'm in fourth grade, fifth grade. How many girlfriends do you have? I don't know. I, I don't even know what a girlfriend is, but, you know, so and I, I got really interested and I didn't know what that you're just like your father meant. I, I didn't know what that meant um, back then, but they were saying I was supposed to be a womanizer, Dominican father, Puerto Rican mother, supposed to have a lot of women, supposed to be out and about. And um, it's, it's normal. It's natural culture. Right. I said, OK. By sixth grade. Um, I had my first job. I was, I was, I was really, I, I wanted to work and provide. And um, I was working for this uh, Hasidic um, group. It was, it was a small fish market. And I was delivering fish, a bag of fish for about 15 cents around the neighborhood. And I came home and I felt so excited about that. I begged my mom for this job. I said, mom, can I just work? I just want to provide, I just want to do something. She said, okay, but as long as you come home by five o'clock, you have to do your homework. And I felt like a champion um, and I was trying to help but, but around that time, just the anger started mounting up. This pressure, this load on my shoulders just started, um, started mounting up something, something horrible. I remember I, I came home one day and um, I see my mom in the kitchen. She wasn't normally depressed. She was very strong. But I come home and she was sitting in the kitchen um, and she was crying. And I felt like I couldn't find enough rolls of bounty paper to help dry her tears. And I got angry. I was really upset because I saw my oldest brother who needed help. And then I saw my father was somewhere else. And then my second oldest brother, he left to the, to the army. I felt alone. And I was really, really pissed off. Um, and that, you know, I changed something. And that, it, I remember it was on that time that I made a promise to my mom. I said, mom, I'm never going to abandon you. It's going to be you and I, and we're going to take care of home. And that's why I, I made that pledge and I did it. And I stuck around. But what did that mean? That meant four o'clock morning alarms when my brother had a seizure and we were in the hospital or a two in the morning, my mom is, is screaming and she's calling the ambulance because you know she couldn't figure out what was happening with him and he was changing colors or something happened. So the routine was we get in the, in the ambulance and we rush off to Beth Israel or NYU hospital. And then they'd hold him in, uh, in either the ICU or the medical ICU. And they try to do all these scans and try to figure out because you can't speak, right? How do you, how do you say I feel nauseous? Or how do you diagnose, you know, it's a, it's a toothache or there's something, there's, then there's an imbalance, right? And so the, all the doctors will come down and they'd screen and they have all the clipboards and they, uh, they do all these studies and try to figure out what was happening to my brother. And so as I grew up, my mom would do the day shift and I'd do the night shift. And I'd, I'd take a change of clothes and I was in the construction industry by that time. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I just stay there. I sleep on the sofa sometimes and then for the week. And then I'd take a shower, go to work. My mom would go home, rest a little bit and I'd come back. And that was life, but it was, it was pretty tough. And I felt no one was around. So it brings me to my first point. If you have a son, don't tell him you're the man of the house. 
when he's a kid. <laughs> it's not a good move. Let him be a boy. If he needs to cry, encourage him to cry. He's got he's to get that thing out, right? We don't walk around constipated. You got to let it out, right? Because it bottles something up and it comes out in a negative way. And you don't want that. By the time I was a teen, I was, not, I was playing hooky now. Hooky was when you skip school for those, those guys. Um, and uh, I skipped school. And it was then when I had my first sexual encounter. I think it was in, in junior high school. I skipped school. And I went somewhere and, um, you know, I was introduced to this thing and, and I was amazed. I, I didn't have anyone else to speak to about it. My dad wasn't home. You know, I didn't say, hey, I had my first kiss and my neighbors were there for me, right? Um, around that same time, my dad, one day he, he flies me over to Dominican Republic and I'm with him. And he says, hey, I, I'm got, I've got somebody to introduce you to. I've got some people to introduce you to. Just, just keep it a secret. Don't tell your, your mom. And I found that I had 12, I, I can't remember, 12, 16 brothers and sisters in the Dominican Republic, and each with different women. And so now I'm a teen, and I'm coming back home, and I have to look my mom in the face and hold the secret. But I love my father, love my mom. I didn't want to break her heart, but I was really excited that she cut it off. She's like, this guy's got to go. I said, yes, thank you. Because he wasn't, he wasn't good in that way to be the father of the home. I remember. Um, my brother would take the bus um, to school and I'd, I'd pick him up. We'd stop, the bus would stop in the middle of the street in Brooklyn, stop all the traffic. I've had to pull him out of the, the, you know, the, the bus. And it was embarrassing for me just growing up as a kid. You know, I loved him, but it was embarrassing. Right? People would walk around, they look and they're staring and I didn't want that. But that was my life and I was, I was growing up through it. And so I grew up with a lot of anger, ended up joining gangs. Uh, in high school, I was in a gang a few gangs. I didn't do too good. Um, my mother was pretty strict, so she didn't let me stay outside where all the drug dealing and everything was happening. So I started DJing. I got pretty good in the house, made a lot of noise. So I had to go to a club <laughs> and I was DJing in clubs, but that opened up the world to, to more, more women and more uh, hanging out and being in places I shouldn't have been. Um, by the time I was 20, um, now it's all about work. And I'm working in my vocation. I'm professionally building buildings and managing projects as a construction manager, working for owners and developers, and I'm overseeing projects. I got so good because I just poured everything into work. So I'd go to school full time. I took around six classes, got through some, somewhere around through the master's degree. And then I, I'd work at least 80 hours a week. That was easy for me. And it was, it was just normal. I didn't know I was medicating with work. I was medicating my pain away with work. It wasn't so much porn, it wasn't any of that other stuff, but it was work. I felt great because I got the approval of my bosses, I got the approval of, of other people, and it just felt so gratifying, right? See something from nothing grow, and here's this big building, and then I tore my dad around. I said, look, dad, look, I built that thing. Um, something changed when I was, when it was 2006. By that time, I was in, in my later 20s, um, and I hear this message on the radio, I'm laying in bed and I hear this message, this preacher, boisterous voice, and he says, God is real. And he said, you know, these other things. And so by, in five minutes in that preaching, my, I had a lump in my throat. I was ready to turn it off. I thought it was like a Saturday Night Live skit. Lump in my throat, 10 minutes in, tears down my eyes. And so I called the radio station. I said, I got to get a copy of this message. That was powerful. I don't know what it was, but where, where, where can I get a copy? 
And the lady said, you have to call the radio station direct. I mean, you have to call the church direct. So I called the church. I said, I got to get a copy of this thing. It was powerful. In fact, where are you? She gave me the address. And during the week, I was working on a project in the Bronx. And during the week, I had this rumble in my belly. I just wanted more of whatever that man was saying. And I couldn't hold it. So I, I called. I got into project manager mode. Where are you? I want that copy of the message. Send it to me right away. You're late. <laughs> and so she gave me the address. Sunday morning, I was there at 8 a.m. I walked into this church. They sit me right in the front row. I thought everything was going to flames, right? Because I, I wasn't in church. Front row. Same thing happened. Man gets up, starts speaking five minutes in, has my attention. Ten minutes, lump in my throat. Fifteen minutes, tears are streaming down my eyes. Now I knew God was speaking into my heart. I knew that message was for me. So at the end of all of it, I closed my eyes and I said, God, if you're real, prove it. I want to be a good man. I want to be hopefully a good husband. I, know, I don't know what a marriage looks like. Never seen one. But I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good son. And I want to hopefully be a dad. I opened my eyes. I put my hands back down. And I said, oh, by the way, if you want me to walk around with a collar, a white collar, Bible under my arm, I'm out. That's not for me. I like house music. I like hip hop. I'm not, I'm not down with that plan. And then I said, all right, cool, cool. I walked out. And my life started changing. My life changed. And Jesus became real. That word became so real. It was amazing. I, I, wasn't, I, was, I was angry, full of anger. I was full of, like, hate. And Jesus and his love and forgiveness and this message of, of, of goodness started coming out. And even my relationship with my mom changed. It was incredible. He changed my life. And I would drive from Brooklyn to Baltimore, Maryland, where that church was, every Sunday morning for months. I didn't mind the drive, but I wanted the word. I ended up becoming a youth leader for a while. Um, and so I'd pick the kids off of, off of the street, um, and I'd take them to job sites, and I'd sit around in compound buckets with them and talk about life. And I'd say, hey, man, you're pretty good at selling drugs on the corner, but what if you put that into work and business and, and through some anger programs and stuff like that? And it was so amazing. It was meaningful. And it wasn't about chasing all this money in real estate and trying to close a deal. It was now it was how do I infuse meaning into real estate? How do I infuse meaning and help someone else grow? And it was amazing. And so I start forgiving my dad. I start forgiving my father. And the word, again, becomes real. In, Col in Colossians 3.13, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I remember I had been forgiven of much. The relationships that I had before I met Jesus, they sucked. It was all about me. It was all about sex. It was all about... How fast can I, I get in and out? And when the relationship became real, I left because I had to commit. But there's one thing that kept sticking in my heart was this, this issue I had with my second oldest brother who left to the army. I just, I couldn't forgive him. I felt like, man, this guy just walked out on us. Not a birthday card for my mom, not a, a call to say, hey, can I stop by the hospital? Nothing. And I had this hate. So I called him. I remember I was, I was driving. I pulled off to the side and, and this word just came it just came right to the center of my mind and my heart. And I said, man, would you forgive me? I haven't been the best brother to you. And then he's in shock. I can see that he was in shock. Well, I couldn't see. I was on the phone. But I can tell he was in shock. And he said, you should forgive me. 
And so we forgave each other. And man, I just felt like the world came off of my shoulders. I was driving around and I had this hate and this unforgiveness. And it was like I was drinking um, poison, expecting him to die because of this unforgiveness. And then my brother's blindness. This one was, was incredible. In John 9, 1 through 3, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. For years and years, I'm praying, God, why my mom? Why my brother? Why does he have to be blind? Why does he have to have so many issues? What does she do? Why does he have to suffer this way? And this word comes in. And immediately, I see how my mom and I are in the hospital. And the nurses and the doctors come in. The top surgeons of NYU come in. And they're prescribing, they have all these things, these clipboards, and they're prescribing something. And my mom is saying, no, nah, no, nah, that's not going to work. It's not going to function. And then they say, okay, well, how can you tell her that? She's, she goes over, she motions over, my brother was able to speak. She's able to communicate with my brother in something that was amazing. And they were, the doctors were amazed. They just, they couldn't figure it out. And then they would translate something to me, and I'd do something with my brother. And, and man, the way that we communicated with each other was incredible. It was so inspiring that it inspired them. And it clicked. They said, wow. For me, normative life is very different than their normal life. And so he was ministering, and I didn't realize it. I didn't realize how that love relationship could help inspire someone else. But God allowed that to happen so that I could witness the way my brother was ministering. It was amazing. And the embarrassment fades. Now I'm no longer embarrassed. Now I'm proud, walking down the block, pushing that wheelchair. But I still have this problem of seeking approval as I'm growing. 20s and 30s, even 40s. I'm 45 now. I know I look young, but I promise you, I was born in the 1900s. <laughs> so I remember I was taking my dad to, um, to these projects, and I, I, I couldn't ever remember a time when he said, I love you, or I'm proud of you. I never heard that. I, I can't remember a time when I cracked a joke and he laughed. I just... I think I saw him cry maybe once at graduation, and I think it was more because he was happy that someone in his family graduated. I think. I never asked him that. But 1 Corinthians 13, 11 comes in. And when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things away. And I learned that when I was a kid, I needed that approval. I needed to cling on to my dad. I needed that hug, that pat on the back. You did a great job. You're amazing. You're worth something. I needed that. That was like milk to my system. It was nourishment. But as I got older, now that approval comes from God. And so I seek his approval now. And it's okay. If someone says, you suck, God bless you. And I keep walking. Right? And 2017 was the hardest year of my life. My father has a heart attack in the Dominican Republic, and they call me. 
And he said, you got to fly over to the Dominican Republic because no one wants to come and take care of your dad. Everyone had abandoned him. All of his sons, daughters, his brother that lived right in the capital where it happened. No one wanted to go over and he's 84. And I'm building this project for Ian Schrager down in the West Side Highway, Studio 54 guy. And um, it's a big, big building and I'm busy. I can't go. Call somebody else. I said, nope, nobody wants to go. So I fly down to the Dominican Republic. He had passed out in the middle of the street. And when I got there, he was in the third world country hospital. I mean, flies, maggots, all kinds of stuff. He didn't even have an IV. His, his bed was soiled. I was, I was so upset. So I picked him up and we, hey, Ron, picked him up, put him in the cab and took him to another hospital. And I found out that he needed some kind of a heart transplant or some, some operation in his heart. I don't know how severe it was, but I know it was pretty bad. I was, I, I'm not a doctor, but I knew it was pretty bad. When you see black lines and you see red lines and they're all pointing down, I knew it was pretty bad. So they put him into the ICU and he's there getting nursed. They plug him up in a few days and I'm, I'm going to the, to the hospital and I'm going to the, back to my hotel and I'm praying, I'm fasting. And I go back and I've never in my life witnessed a medical miracle. But a few days later, the same doctor, top surgeon, comes out and she says, this was the report that I showed you. And this is the report. And this is the report now. We can't understand what happened. But we're transferring out. We're transferring him out of ICU into just a normal bed. And he'll be out in a few days. He's got to come back for another follow-up visit. I said, wow, okay. And I prayed, but while he was in the ICU and while he was getting nursed, I was bringing him cups of fruit. I said, Dad, do you know Jesus? You know God? He said, yeah, I know about God. I said, would you, would, you like to be a, would you like to be blessed and forgiven and have a relationship with Jesus? He said, yeah. And I was able to pray the prayer of salvation with my dad. So I get him all set up. I come back home. I'm running the project. And now my brother has uh, several strokes in his brain, and he goes into the hospital. It's only a few days apart. And so we go back into emergency mode. My mom and I, we're doing the shifts. And now he's in Beth Israel. Medical ICU, ICU, he's plugged up. Now he has a machine. I've never seen him in this condition. And uh, my mom is a primary caretaker, right? Mom, I'm the secondary. So the top surgeon brings us in, um, neurologist. Um, and we sit in this big conference room and she gives us the choice. She says, you got to make a decision. If he comes out of this, he's, he's not going to be well. And I have to translate from English to Spanish to my mom. And so we're sitting there and we make a decision. And he goes from, from ICU, he goes to hospice. And in hospice, I put my hand on his heart one night. And we're standing there. And, um, and I tell him, Eddie, I'm so proud of you. I love you. You did a great job. You inspired so many people. You completed your mission. Be at peace. And with that, he breathes his last breath and he fades. And we take him and we, um, we go through a funeral. And at that time, that was like my son, right? 54 years old, but he's my son. And um, it was pretty tough. I called this man. He stood, he stood right there in the gap with me. His name is Jack. And then I go back to work, right? Because I didn't, I didn't know how else to, to deal with these things. So I go back to work and I'm running a big meeting 
I have uh, all the executives and the developer, they're sitting at the table. And um, about a week later, I'm, I'm administering this, this meeting again. And I get a phone call from my aunt, same lady. She says, I'm sorry to call you at this time. I said, what happened? She said, your dad, your dad is not around anymore. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, I just got a call from the Dominican Republic and um, I, I, it's not confirmed yet, but they're saying that he passed away. I said, okay, don't call anyone else, especially don't call my mom. It's only been a week. Don't call anybody. Make sure you find out. I'll call you back in an hour. I went back. I don't know what I did, but I put that thing in a box, went back in, finished the meeting, came out, and I made the call. I said, all right, Thea, in Spanish, is on. I said, Thea, all right, what's going on? She said, yeah, your dad passed away. He committed suicide. He hung himself. I said, okay. I hung up the phone. Called this man. Called my wife. My wife said, come home. And that was pretty tough. And so I learned a few things. I learned that the glory of God is exposed through the challenges of life. I learned that our glory exists not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. And I learned that the world needs your glory. And I really do believe that in those moments of time, when we isolate, when we try to figure things out in our own mind, in our own world, it's really important for us to step into a room with community where we can just reveal the ugliest, dirty things of our lives to some other brother. It's really powerful. And I think that's what changed my life. In the back of this room, I have two men that I love very much. And in this room, I have a tremendous amount of men that I love, that I've been able to be vulnerable with and talk to. We got John who's mentoring me. We got Tim that I walk life with. Brothers, it's really powerful to be plugged into another group, a community, and not try to figure these things out on your own because we die in isolation, but we thrive in community. And if you're able to tap into that, and you're able to apply that into your work, into your business, into all of what you do, and today I can tell you for sure that God has changed my life. I'm, I think I've attained the highest title I could ever attain. My two daughters call me daddy. This kid from Brooklyn. My wife says I love you, and I'm faithful to that lady. And I love groups like the NCS. I need it because it satisfies my soul. God bless you.